the book of Mark, chapter 6. So starting a new chapter here this morning as we begin to look at this chapter Jesus is really going to hit on something that 2,000 years plus later from when he said that, this is something that is a plague of the church. And what Jesus is so astonished at is unbelief. He's astonished. In fact, it said that he marveled at their unbelief. Think about that. Think about everything that Jesus has seen and done and experienced, and he actually marveled at their unbelief. Isn't that something? It makes me think about how Jesus saw an unbelief, how he saw those people that we're going to look at today, that he was in their midst, and yet uh, they just exercised unbelief. There's power of unbeliefs. And so the question is this morning for us, do we understand unbelief correctly? Do we see it as the way the Bible portrays it to us? The Bible tells us that unbelief is very unnatural. It's not normal for us not to believe in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us how evil unbelief is. In order for someone to have unbelief, they have to actually suppress the truth. And they do that in unrighteousness. To um, be unbelieving is to be unreasonable, to deny the reality, to deny facts, to deny the evidence, to be in unbelief is to deny what is written on our hearts, and that is that eternity is written on our hearts. And in order to unbelieve or not believe, we have to actually believe in something else that is unreliable, unsubstantiated, unconfirmable, and to base our whole eternity on believing something else other than the most believable thing there is, is lunacy. It's crazy. In fact, the writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 3.12 says, Beware brethren. So he, he's talking about or to believers. He's saying, Beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So the Bible tells us that unbelief is actually evil. It's unreasonable. It's unfathomable. And it means that we have to depart from the living God to believe a lie and replace that with the truth. And so the fact is that we all believe something. And not believing in the most substantiated and revealed thing that has ever existed, and that's Jesus Christ fulfilling the prophecies of Scripture, the foretelling of the end before the beginning, not believing what only could ex be explained by Jesus being the one in whom was foretold by someone who is outside of time, space, 
and matter, someone that can only be God. We have the more sure word of prophecy that declares the end from the beginning and then works out all the details so that we know. And that's what John in his um, first epistle said, I'm telling you these things so that you may know. So the question is, what are we believing today? There are many uh, opponents and distractions to believing in the truth of Jesus Christ. And so we have to, one, ask ourselves, what are we believing unto eternal life? So that's the first big question. What are we believing unto salvation? And as Peter would say, well, there's a lot of things about salvation that I don't like, but where else am I going to go? Because Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. So what are you going to believe for your salvation? What are you going to believe on the day that you stand before God to give account for what you believed? What are you going to explain? What excuses are you going to give him? Because the Bible says no man is without excuse. So what are you believing in to salvation? The second thing is what are you believing unto sanctification? So if you are a believer, then how do you live your life? And how does your belief in this almighty God who came and died and rose again and has given us eternal life in him. So how does that work, work itself out practically? So are we believing in our life circumstances? Are we believing in how we live our life? And so these are the things that Jesus now, after, as we've gone through the book of Mark, we've seen him minister. We've seen him call disciples we see him telling uh, people the difference between his kingdom and the worldly kingdom. We see him put on display all his power for all to see. And now he says this in Mark chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Then he went out from there, and he came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And so they were offended at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and his own house. And now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them and he marveled because of their unbelief. And then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. And so we have this account laid out the second time and the only time we're 
finding in the Bible where it says that Jesus marveled at something. And here it was marveling at unbelief. And in another instance, in the instance of the centurion who asked Jesus to go and heal his son. But in reality, he said, you, Jesus, you can heal, or I'm sorry, my servant. You can heal my servant from wherever you are. Jesus marveled at his faith. And so, boy, I think about this and I think, what does Jesus think and how does he look at my faith? Would he marvel in the positive or marvel in the negative? And I don't know what he is actually doing in regards to my faith, but I hope and pray that I can live where he would marvel at my faith in the positive. So let's take a look at this a little closer. And if you're taking notes, we have four particular aspects of unbelief that we're going to look at in regards to the negative aspect of unbelief. Number one is unbelief forgets who Jesus is. And I really believe that's the foundation of all unbelief. That's where it begins. And whether we forget him unto salvation, where we don't come to him for salvation, or whether we're believers and we forget him as believers and then we're not walking by faith. So look what he says, or look what it says in this first particular section. It says, then he, Jesus, he went out from there. Where's there? There is Capernaum. which is a place where he sort of had his headquarters for his Galilean ministry. So Jesus first began his ministry in the sort of desert areas of Judea for about a year. And then he began to minister in and around the Sea of Galilee. And then as you go through the Gospels, that's what you realize that much of Jesus's ministry is around this Sea of Galilee, all these villages and towns there. And so Jesus, he, he, he went out from there and came to his own country. And I, I should say, he, now he's coming to Capernaum back. I, I made a mistake. He, he's not coming from Capernaum. He's going to Capernaum. Sorry about that. So he's coming back to his, his own country. And what that means is, is, He's coming to the place where arguably he might have done the most miracles that he he had done up to this point. He's done probably thousands of miracles. And he has thousands of people interested in him and what he is doing at all different levels of interest. So he has his disciples that have actually left everything to follow him. And in a sense, they have surrendered and given their life to him the best they know how at the moment. He had others that were desiring to be healed from their sickness or illness, and and he is healing everybody. And as as he was healing everybody, there was a a desperation to get to him because they, they saw him giving sight to the blind and giving hearing to the deaf and giving voice 
to those who couldn't speak. They saw him casting out demons. They saw him grow a hand that there was a lame, paralyzed hand. They have probably heard about him casting out thousands of demons into pigs running down a hill to kill themselves and restoring a man who was demon-possessed. It just goes on and on and on. And so now he's coming back to his hometown where he has spent a lot of time, and that was in Nazareth. That's where he grew up. He grew up in Nazareth. So now as he... Uh, is growing up and spent his time after being born in Bethlehem. And then uh, you think about all he's done in Nazareth growing up. And that's why it says this is his own country. Now, here's what we need to understand. And if, if you will take a moment with me to turn to Luke's um, account in Luke chapter 4. So just a little to the right. So in Luke chapter 4 we actually get an earlier account of Jesus's time in Nazareth. As Jesus is there in Nazareth, in Nazareth in the early part of his ministry. So he just got baptized by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit came upon him. He went out in the wilderness to be tempted and now he's in his hometown. And it's very interesting. If you look at verse 18 of chapter 4. So this is a different account, but this is the first time that Jesus, with really no followers at this point, no miracles, no mighty works, nothing. And this is Jesus, his, uh, his hometown experience and ministry. It says that he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. So mind you, this was probably the synagogue where Jesus went and spent time as a little boy and grew up up until his public ministry, which means that he has probably been in that synagogue over a thousand times. If you do the math and you think, you know, 52, so once a week, say 52 times a year, and then you start adding the years that Jesus was in Nazareth before he started his public ministry, he'd probably been in this synagogue thousands of times. And these synagogues were not big. And the town of Nazareth was not big. Um, archaeologists and those who study those sort of things say there was probably no more than 500 people in this town. So imagine growing up in a small town. Anybody ever grow up in a town with 500 people or less? Anybody? One person? A couple people, yeah. So I did not, but I would imagine everybody knows each other. And if you have family lineage in that town, then, you know, the families, they, they all know each other. And this is... This was what it was like. So now here's Jesus after he has grown up, after he has uh, began his public ministry outwardly. He goes to this particular synagogue and he stood up to read. And it says he was handed the book 
of the prophet Isaiah. So this was their custom, the keeper of the synagogue, that they would have scrolls kept away, and they would bring the scrolls out. So this says book. They didn't have books like we had. They had a scroll, and they pulled out the scroll of Isaiah, and Jesus read this part, which in our Bibles is from Isaiah 61. And this is important. So Jesus read, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book or the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing so jesus went back to and is in his hometown in the synagogue where he had have spent time growing up and People were so familiar, and he stands up, he reads the prophecy of the Messiah coming, one of the many. And he says, in the reading of this, your scripture is fulfilled. And he's saying, I'm the guy. He's declaring who he is. And he starts with his own people. But then... In verse 22, so all bore witness to him and they marveled at his gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth and they said, is this not Joseph's son? There's where they start to go wrong. Jesus is declaring he is the fulfillment of scripture and they like that, but then they're thinking shifts away from that declaration, away from the word to what they're seeing and what they know. Isn't this Joseph's son? In other words, they're saying, this was just, this just, he's just a guy. He's just a, a normal guy. And we know Joseph and he was a carpenter and, and we know Jesus. He was a carpenter too. He made my yoke for my oxen. He, he made things for me and he's declaring that he's the fulfillment of scripture. So then in verse 23, Jesus said to them, now Jesus is prophesying to them and he's saying, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, whatever we have heard, have heard done in Capernaum do also here in your country. And he said, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and 
there was a great famine throughout the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except for Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except for Naaman the Syrian. So what's going on here? Jesus is saying that in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha did not go to the children of Israel, specifically the widows or the lepers, because they were rejecting him. They were rejecting the prophets. They were rejecting the message. They were in unbelief. And Jesus is pointing that out, that even the prophets, they went to non-Jewish people and he points out the specifics of that because of the rejection of him by his own people, by the Jews. So in verse 28, all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath and they rose up and thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill or the edge of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. So turn back with me. So that was the first time they tried to kill Jesus when he, one, proclaimed who he was, which they liked, but then, two, he emphasized the fact that the Jews have been rejecting him as their Messiah. So... In our particular account, this is the second account. Now, from there, Jesus went out. From Luke's account, from Jesus' first ministry in Nazareth, he went out, and as he went out, now he's gathering disciples. So he's coming back with disciples. He's coming back with miracles. He's coming back with displays of proof of Isaiah 61, and now he's coming back. And think about the grace and the mercy of Jesus. Those people tried to kill him. They tried to push him off a cliff because they didn't like what he's saying. But he comes back. His grace continues to reach out. He continues to call them unto him, and he doesn't necessarily just forsake them the one time that they... they tried to kill him, but he comes back at the risk of his life, at the risk of the endangerment of his own person. And that's what is being told here to us by Mark, that he's coming back. So in verse 2, it says, And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. In other words, again, he's coming back to do the same thing again giving them another chance, giving them another opportunity, now with the substantiation of all the things that he has done and all the testimonies of his miracle. But watch what happens. As he begins to teach in the synagogue, there, there are many hearing him, and it says they were astonished. So there is, the way he was saying things was so different 
so authoritative, so powerful. They're, they're commenting that we have never seen anything like this before. We've never heard anything like this before. Their own personal experience up to this point would be to have a, a rabbi that was highly trained by another really well-known rabbi and be schooled and be educated and to follow the manner of life of this rabbi. And Jesus didn't do any of that. So that's where they're, they're saying, where does he get this stuff? But see, what we, what we find out is they're automatically asking the wrong question. Where does he get this stuff? And then they point out, it says, and the, that wisdom is this which is given to him. So where, where's this wisdom? that They're acknowledging there's something supernatural here. What he's saying and now how he's saying it and how he's applying it, we've never seen anything like this before. And then they, they indict themselves by saying that such mighty works are performed by his hand. So really they're saying three things. There, there, there was a, a, a definite, distinct, unique, never before seen or heard characteristics of Jesus. The same Jesus that, yes, we saw grow up and the same Jesus that stood up before and declared that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. So what's happening here? And how, how does this unbelief that Jesus marvels at, how does it begin and, and how does it take root and how does it begin to be a lifestyle for a person? And, and it, it's, it's all right here. They're forgetting who Jesus was. And because they were forgetting who Jesus was, now they're starting to ask the wrong questions. Where did he get this stuff? Instead of saying he must be what he said he was. And they're declaring it out of their own mouth. And so that's, that's what we can do. If you're a believer here today, what do you have to believe in order to actually be saved? You have to believe in Jesus Christ to the extent where you'd put your trust in him, right? Not a believe about because the demons even believe. That's not an impressive thing to believe something that's true, but to believe to where we would put our trust in him. So as believers, sometimes things happen where we forget who Jesus is. And that might be the place that we need to go back to. We might, like the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 12 says, we might truly be brethren or believers, born again, saved, filled with the Holy Spirit people, and yet live our life out practically 
not believing, having a, an evil heart. And why, why do we have an evil heart when we don't believe Jesus? Because who are we believing? Satan. If we're not believing Jesus, if we're not believing the word of God, we're believing Satan, and Satan is the author of all lies. We can look at Satan and, and realize that his ministry is a ministry of lies. It's a ministry of deception, trickery, trying to plant seeds of doubt, just like he did in the Garden of Eden. So, so for us to think about, the first step is whatever may be causing us doubt or confusion or despair or frustration, we have to first come back to remember who Jesus is. And if he is truly the God that fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament and the prophecy out of his own mouth that in three days and three nights, like Jonah was in the belly of the whale, I too will rise again from the dead and Jesus fulfilled that. Well, then he should be sufficient for everything else, right? So if he's sufficient to save us, all else is gravy. Everything else shouldn't be a big deal. So often our problem as believers is just we simply forget who Jesus is. We forget he is the creator of all. We forget that he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. We forget that he's transcendent, yet he condensated to be a human being to take on our lives. So what that tells us is the bigness of Jesus has also then brought him to the lowness of humanity so we can know him. So he's big enough to do anything and then he came to be a man so that he can sympathize and empathize with us as a great high priest who knows what we go through. So we have to first come back to remembering Jesus. Remember Jesus in whatever it is that you're struggling with and dealing with. But it's like a slippery slope. When we forget Jesus, you know what happens? We start to fixate on the things that we see. And that's what we see happening next. There's a fixation on what is seen. Now, the book of Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So faith is the assurance in our hearts of the reality of God and the reality of the unseen things. And Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 tells us that faith is not blind, but it tells us that our faith is in things that are unseen. There's an unseen world, but the unseen world is often revealed in the seen world. And that's why the book of Romans tells us that no one's without excuse because God's invisible attributes are seen in his creation. So that lends to an understanding of 
it's, it could not be more reasonable and obvious that there is a creator because we see everything. So any normal, natural person would know that anything we see has to have someone or something that made it and designed it. And that was the argument in the book of Romans. But see, what happens now is when we begin to forget about Jesus, when we have spiritual amnesia, then our focus shifts from the kingdom of heaven to the kingdom of earth. Watch how this happens in verse 3. So instead of remembering what Jesus said, remembering the scriptures and how they declared the Messiah would come, now they're looking at certain characteristics of Jesus, which in their mind would cause them to doubt that he is the Messiah. Number one, is this not the carpenter? That was a way of saying he wasn't someone who came to the earth with any substantial means. You know, you might want to say he is a, a worker, he is a hard worker, he didn't come as a king or president or a popular person. He came as someone who built things for people. And that, that was their way of, of deducing the reality or making themselves feel more comfortable with the reality of who Jesus really was. But then the second thing is, they say, not only is this not the carpenter, they say, the son of Mary. That would actually be an insult. Because if you remember in Luke, they said he was the son of Joseph. So in their culture, and in like our culture, you're the son of the father. That's how you're known, kind of like a junior. Or kind of like when you get married and you take your husband's last name. That's the proper order. So they're, they're actually, two things, they're actually diminishing him and saying, you're the son of your mother, not the son of your father. But the second thing is they're intimating that Jesus was born illegitimately. You're the son of your mother. In other words, they're, they're saying, you're saying you're the fulfillment of prophecy. And out of their own mouth, what we hear, what we saw, what we understand, there's never been anything like this completely otherworldly, and Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies, and yet they're, they're so focused on the fact that he was a carpenter, his occupation. What does that really have to do with him being the Messiah? Nothing. But that's, that's what we do. We start to reason, and when we reason with only our eyes on the things of the world, we will have a tendency to reason towards the negative to reason towards the deduction of the reality of the things which God is and which God says. And then they go on and they say, Jesus, you had brothers and your sisters are right here. And their response is they're offended now. 
So now the anger kicks in again. But see, not only did they forget who Jesus was, but because they forgot who Jesus was, their eyes and their minds were so fixated on the things of this world and seeing things only in the natural that they forgot that even the scriptures in the Old Testament explained how Jesus was going to come. For example, in Isaiah 53, 2, it says about Jesus, he will grow up before God the Father as a tender plant and as a dry root or at a, uh, as a root out of dry ground. He will have no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, Isaiah is saying the Messiah is not going to come as this incredible, worldly, earthly person that his earthly attributes would signify that he would be the Messiah. Like he'd be the best looking, the most um, influential, the most popular, the most whatever. He basically came very average that in his physical appearance, nobody would really recognize that, wow, this is the Messiah. And they should have known that. And they would have known from Isaiah 7, 14, as they talk about him being the son of Mary and uh, implicating her as maybe an adulteress and Je Jesus being illegitimate and Isaiah 7, 14, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. But see, when we forget Jesus, we fixate on the thing that is right before us. Instead of understanding the whole picture, instead of understanding the whole realm of the way God is working in a particular situation but that's a natural thing that happens when we take our eyes off Jesus when we take our eyes off his will his plan his word what happens is our thinking gets lower our thoughts don't go higher than the thing that we're struggling with we stay fixated on the things of earth and not on the things of heaven and this is exactly what Jesus rebuked Peter about in Matthew 16:22 where he tells Peter when Peter was telling him not to go to the cross Jesus says get behind me Satan you are an offense to me for you are not mindful of the things of God but the things of men. And then he says, if anyone desires to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And what Jesus was telling Peter, he's like, Peter, you recognize who I am, but you're not recognizing my plan. And this is what happens when we fixate ourselves into earthly thinking too much. We may recognize Jesus as the Messiah, but we don't recognize his plan because it doesn't square with our plan. And Jesus says, you need to deny yourself. 
It's not about your plan. It's not about your ways. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. You have no idea, God's telling us, as he told Job, you have no idea the things that I'm doing right now. You can't even comprehend, so don't worry about it. Let me be God and you be people. Can you do that? Is that okay? Let me do my thing and you do your thing. And so, focusing on the world, and and mind you, that's one of the things that the world wants to do, is to get us to to focus on it. It's a strategy of Satan. In fact, when we do that, Paul in Philippians 3.19 says that we're, that's a characteristic of actually being an enemy of the cross, that our minds are set on earthly things. And then Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, is where your heart is. And so we see Jesus ministering, displaying, encouraging, drawing the people of his hometown to him once again. And we see a similar reaction. But see, when we forget who Jesus is and we begin to fixate on this world and we see the world is where our treasure is and, and we have trouble seeing the big picture and seeing the world in relationship to the kingdom of heaven. What, what happens then is we will fail to honor the Lord. And this, for a believer, is, is really the one simple understanding of how we live our life. We live it to honor the Lord. But when we start to think God doesn't care, what I do doesn't matter, everything is the way it is, and then we, we try to fix things through our own means, through our own processes, we, we try to take back control when God says, deny yourself, well then what happens is we don't honor the Lord. So watch what happens in verse 4. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Do you notice the shrinking borders? So what he's saying is, a prophet is honored normally. A prophet is seen as one who speaks for God. A prophet is one in the Old Testament that would do miracles that could help. A prophet would be one who a king would go to to find out, well, what does the Lord say? They would be seen as people, even by pagan nations, like um, in the book of Daniel, where King Nebuchadnezzar went to Daniel to find answers to his problems. So normally, and the further you get away from the people close to you, the more they accept you. So if you want to be respected, move very far away from your friends and family and relatives. (laughs) But you can't miss the point. And some of you may have experienced this in your life where your faith in Christ is causing much conflict and friction in family relationships. That's normal. And if you have 
as a believer, good family relationships, please be on your knees thanking the Lord and praising him because that is a gift from God to you. That is an amazing gift. But it's not, not necessarily normal. And many who have come to faith in Christ, maybe uh, when they are a little older, have found out they get pushback and resistance from their family. I see that fairly often as a pastor. I see families who would prefer their child to be running with thugs and hoodlums and drug addicts than they would to be a believer in Jesus Christ. That's reality. That's truth. But see, when we or our life begins to be more concerned to the point of rejecting God and rejecting truth, to where we're more concerned about what people think, where we're more concerned about our family liking us and there being peace in our family, which the Bible tells us we should strive for peace, we should be peacemakers, but not to the point of compromising our faith. And we will find ourselves often in positions and places where we have to obey God and potentially sacrifice family ties and family relationships. And we should never originate those things or push those things, but that's a natural thing that often happens because Jesus said, I come to bring a sword and not peace. And what are you saying is that what the truth separates people. And oftentimes we're put in a position where in order for there to be peace, we have to compromise the truth. And that's where Jesus is saying we can't do that because the truth is more important. And so Jesus is pointing out, even for him in his hometown, imagine that, with his credibility, and because of their familiarity with him, they couldn't accept it. And they didn't honor him. And this is what often will happen to us when we forget Jesus and we fixate on the world. And remember, Satan is always trying to take our focus to the things of the world and off him because when he does that, we'll have a tendency not to honor God and to live as a Christian not honoring God is to deny the very God who saved us. And this is critical. This is critical for those who want us to deny our faith because in order for them to have faith, we must walk and live out our faith. And they may not like it and they may have their feathers ruffled, but if we truly love them, we will love them in our walks with honoring God so that they can know the God who saved us as well. But see, it's, it's so important that we understand that because this life is so temporary, 
The Bible says the world is passing away and the things of it. That we don't live our life out in a way where we don't honor God. And so we have to remember that our life here is as ambassadors to a heavenly kingdom. And the best way we are ambassadors is we honor God. But see, when we take our eyes of that, off that, and that's what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32, he said, If the dead do not rise, then let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. In other words, what Paul is saying, if there's no afterlife, if there's no heaven, if there's no eternity, if this life is it, then nothing matters. And you know what? There's a lot of people that want you to believe that, that this is it. And so since this is it, nothing matters. You might as well live your life however you want because nothing matters. But Jesus was quoting from Isaiah 22, 13. And in that particular text, Jesus was telling the children of Israel that they should be mourning. And instead, they were rejoicing. And they were saying, let's eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. And so what Jesus was saying is that this life now is not heaven. And we need to live it to honor God and later is the rejoicing. But when we reverse that, then we're living as people who act like there's nothing else beyond this world. So we must honor God in all we do. And the last point, this is where Jesus just drives this whole thing home, is now what we do when we live in unbelief is we forfeit the mighty works of Jesus in our own life. We forfeit that. So that's why in verse five, it says, now he could do no mighty works there. Now, could Jesus, did he have the potential to do a mighty work? Of course he did. He could do whatever he wants. What does that mean? Well, he, he explains that he did some things for a few people, but he wanted to do more. That's what it's saying. So it wasn't a problem with his power. It wasn't a problem with uh, any sort of restriction of his power. But then in verse uh, 6, it says, he marveled because of their unbelief. So from Jesus' end, He's wanting to do a work amongst his, his hometown people. He wants them to be saved. But see, Jesus can't do the first greatest mighty work of our salvation. How big of a miracle is that? Our salvation is a, it's a miracle. But see, if we won't believe, we'll never ex experience the miracle of salvation. 
If we won't believe, we won't experience the overwhelming love of Christ. If we won't believe, we will not experience our sins being forgiven, the guilt being washed away, the shame, the ability to wake up every day and to know Jesus personally and to know that he is preparing a place for us in heaven and that one day we will be here. But see, if, if we don't believe to, to first for salvation, that we won't experience all of that. And then what we have to do is just believe what the world tells us. The empty hope of science or psychology or self-help or whatever it is, that's what we believe in. And all of those are completely empty. But see, when we believe in Jesus for salvation, that opens up the door now of the mighty works of Jesus in our life. And so this final point is that we, as believers, if you're a believer, then that you would live your life in such a way where you would allow this God who is almighty and all-powerful and cares about us so much that right now he knows the exact number of hairs on your head and he says i have a plan for you a plan for a future and a hope i have good works for you to walk in that you are my masterpiece you are created in me for good works so let me do my thing Stop fighting, stop resisting, stop wrestling. Let me be God in your life. And I believe the church today needs the mighty, powerful works of God to be working in a dying and decaying world. And could it be that the church has become so weak it's because there's no power there? And could there be no power there because people aren't believing and they are professing, but then they're practically not believing? I think so. And so let us be a church that says, you know what? I see you, God. I honor you, God. I bow to you, God. I surrender to you, God. I sign up for your will. Put me on your list. And now, Lord, go to work. And do mighty works through me to the glory and honor of your name. That's what the church needs. Amen. And so this marvel of unbelief. And Jesus is saying, just a marveling at your unbelief. May he marvel at our belief. Whatever it is, just believe in Jesus Christ. And let him do mighty works through you. Amen? Amen? All right, let's pray and we're going to have communion this morning. Father, thank you so much for your word. It's a lamp into our feet. It's so powerful, Lord, and forgive us for doubting. Forgive us for taking control. Forgive us for wanting to do our own thing. Forgive us for not honoring you, Lord. And Lord, we just want to make this profession here as a church this morning and just say your will be done, Lord, not ours. Lord, we want to present ourselves to you as a holy living sacrifice. Lord, we want to say to you, Lord, that 
that we don't want to live for self. We don't want to live in our own willpower and our own strength. But Lord, you say your strength is made perfect in our weakness. And so we surrender now, Lord. We surrender all to you and ask you now, Lord, to take our life and make it yours. Mold it, shape it, and form it to your great masterpiece. May our lives bring glory to your name, Lord. And whatever it is we're dealing with, whatever we're struggling with, now, Lord, may we surrender it to your almighty hand and say that problem is yours, God. And your will be done now, Lord. Whatever you want to do with my life, Lord, you do that. I'm yours. And so as a church, Lord, we present ourselves to you in that way. And individually, Lord, for those here that are just so struggling on where they are in life and what's happening and fear and doubt and confusion, I pray, Lord, that they lift their eyes and see the glory of the Lord. Pray that we would not live in the wilderness any longer, but we would take possession of the promised land, that we would possess all that you have possessed us for. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the glory of Jesus Christ. Forever and ever. Amen. We're going to continue to pray, and we just uh, we have a few minutes left. The ushers are going to pass out the communion elements, and I really um, just ask that you'd really take advantage of this time. We're going to be out of here in just a few minutes, but right now we have an opportunity to spend a few minutes with Jesus contemplatively meditatively so close your eyes speak to Jesus prepare your hearts to take communion remember the Bible says that communion is for believers and so if you're not a believer this morning I want to give you that opportunity I invite you to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death or separation from God, that all those who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Simply cry out to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I receive you as my Lord and Savior now. Do that now. So let's just take a few minutes Hang on to the communion elements. Don't open it yet until we all get it, and then we'll all take it together.
as we hold these elements, these elements represent the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. What that means is that we are to remember what Jesus has done for us. We are to remember the cross, the ultimate, truly the ultimate sacrifice. We are to remember why he did that because of his love for us. And we are to be here and to receive the full extent of the shedding of his blood and the giving of his body. Because of what Jesus has done, none of us here, as we remember the cross, should walk away with any burden. None of us should walk away this morning with any guilt or condemnation. At the cross, Jesus bore all of that. The ugliness of the cross was in order to give us the beauty of the Savior. And so if you're a believer here today, if you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, He has set you free. He has given you peace. He has given you love. He has given you eternal life. And he did it all at the cross. And so we're here to remember that. And we do that through these elements. It's one way that helps us to remember what Jesus did for us. That we have a savior that didn't just lecture about things, but he actually demonstrated his love for us. If any of you are just doubting his love, questioning his love, it's the cross that answers all that for us. We don't need to look for more answers. We don't need to look for more understanding. We need to look at the cross because it was at the cross that he demonstrated his love for us. And so if you haven't already, go ahead and take out the top part of your cup, this wafer. And let's remember the body of Jesus Christ that was first born, taken on, and then given up for us. Let's remember that as we take the bread this morning. Let's take the bread. And then there's the blood the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The blood which washed away our sin, that sinless, taintless, holy blood of Jesus Christ that was shed at the cross. So that our standing before God is one of purity, of holiness, of blamelessness. No matter what we've done and where we've been,
the blood of Jesus Christ has washed away all of our sin. So let's remember that this morning as we partake of the cup. Amen. Let's all stand. We're going to sing to the Lord before we leave. And if anybody would like prayer about anything this morning, we're going to have Rob and Val up front. Just as we sing this last song, feel free to come up and ask them for prayer. So God bless you guys. Have a great day in the Lord and enjoy him today. God bless you guys. Amen. Amen.